CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Jesus warned us about the Christian right 2,000 years ago when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And over the years, the same has sadly become true of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Conservatives opposed him and called him a communist during his lifetime. He was murdered by a conservative white man. Ronald Reagan did make his birthday a federal holiday, but did it very reluctantly. At the time, Jesse Helms was objecting, saying that King was a communist. And Reagan wouldn't deny that. In fact, Sam Donaldson was asking him during the signing ceremony of the holiday. And he said, well, Reagan said they seem bent on making it a national holiday. That was his reason. He didn't say who they were. But the fact is that Dr. King's birthday as a holiday had passed both houses of Congress with ironclad veto proof majorities. That's the only reason it became a holiday because Reagan couldn't veto it. And then Reagan flew off to spend a weekend in Augusta at a golf club that took no black members. At the time, former Governor Meldrum Thompson Jr. of New Hampshire sent Reagan a letter begging him to veto the King holiday because he was a man of immoral character and repeating the charge of communism. Ronald Reagan wrote back saying, on the national holiday you mentioned, I have the reservations you have. But here the perception of too many people is based on an image, not the reality. Today, conservative America celebrates Dr. King, but only in the form of knowing one line from one speech. You know it, and it's a beautiful one. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And this one line, out of context, has been used to oppose affirmative action, oppose reparations, oppose civil rights laws, to diminish the harm done by centuries of institutionalized racism. A line from one speech has been used to let racists play dumb, to extrapolate an entire philosophy based on one phrase from one speech that they take out of context. And that's why I'm so glad to celebrate and honor the real Martin Luther King, and to welcome back to the show Jamar Tisby, the New York Times bestselling author of The Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism. Uh, the Young Readers, he is the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective where he writes about race, religion, politics, and culture. He's also co-host of the excellent Pass the Mic podcast, and you may have read his stuff in the Washington Post or Vox. Jamar Tisby's written extensively about the misappropriation of Martin Luther King, including a great substack last year. We have the words of King, but not his walk. It is a great pleasure to welcome Jamar Tisby back to SiriusXM. Hey, John, glad to be here, especially on this uh, special annual occasion where we get to hopefully undo some misunderstandings and mistruths about this man and the movement. Honestly, I, I love that because to me, more and more, the holiday is about honoring what he really stood for and exploring what he really stood for. We've talked about it before, but, you know, at the time of Dr. King's murder in Memphis, he was as focused on anti-war activities and organized labor as he was on civil rights. Civil rights, you could say, was one third of his ministry by the time of his death. He was there in Memphis for a garbage workers strike. He was fighting for hardworking, low income Caucasians at the time. And it seems like much like Jesus, the real Dr. Martin Luther King is still having the power to be very threatening to so many establishment figures. Absolutely. People latch on to King's commitment to nonviolence, which even in itself, that's a bit of a misnomer. Certainly in the beginning of his ministry, King was not opposed to armed self-defense. He later took a stronger philosophical stance toward nonviolence. But the movement as a whole was 
in general, in support of armed self-defense. In other words, if the Klan was coming after you, then it, you were justified to defend yourself uh, with violence. It really was self-defense, right? So, yeah. so folks latched on to that part of King's philosophy and work, and then they used it to bolster, as you've alluded to, this colorblind approach to social justice to civil rights and they use that as a cover to say well we're past all of that real racist stuff now it only depends on your individual efforts pull yourself up by your bootstraps which king said it's not fair yeah. to ask someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps if they don't have any boots uh so it it, it really is here's here's my little soapbox i appreciate federal national holidays like mlk day and now juneteenth there is a danger of them losing their potency, of people misunderstanding them, but it also functions almost as a cultural liturgy where we can revisit year after year these events, these people, yes. and have a teaching opportunity once again. So that's why I appreciate MLK Day. It has it, it opens up space for conversations like these. I agree. You know, you had a great piece in your Substack a year ago where you talked about how many times you think that MLK Day should be a day off for activists and advocates rather than a day on. And um, I see the wisdom in that. I mean, of all people, that should be a day of just peace. But I share your frustration because we, we consistently see the figure hijacked and a marble statue of a smiling MLK doesn't really help anyone all that much, but his words still do have the power to horrify. And even when you mentioned his nonviolence, I mean, it was so directly based on what Gandhi talked about, what Thoreau talked about. Let me quote him, nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to so dramatize the issue, it can no longer be ignored. So Dr. King was all about turning the other cheek, but he was all about turning the other cheek to shame the one doing the striking. That's right, that's right. You know, I think as you're speaking, it strikes me. I wanna talk about, quote unquote, the radical king, the king Please. that went beyond that one line that you quoted, right? But even as so much of his other teachings are misunderstood, I think there's actually a more fundamental misunderstanding that affects people on the right and the left. It's this, King took a side. And one of the things that I always say is that justice takes sides. Yes. I think that so many of us, well-meaning people, want to, in an attempt to keep the lines of communication open, to bridge across divides, want to look at sort of both and both sides kind of a thing. And what that does is it creates a false equivalency. So I think one of the things that we need to understand, maybe for the first time for some about King, was he took a clear side on many issues that today people might be reluctant. They might be scared to be seen as what, what, what he was called uh, by those white clergymen when he responded in a letter from Birmingham jail. That's right. They're afraid to be seen as, quote unquote, extremists. Mm -hmm. And King was not afraid to say this is right, this is wrong, and I'm standing on the side of right. So I wonder if we might take a lesson in courage from MLK and his compatriots who weren't afraid to speak up for what is right and to take a side. Well, uh, and he really put his money where his mouth was. I mean, we forget, unless you've seen films like King in the Wilderness, how deeply unpopular Dr. King was by the end of his life. Right. The same Democratic establishment that had, you know, embraced him for the Civil Rights Act was confounded that he could oppose President Johnson's war in Vietnam after all President Johnson had done for African-Americans and put Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court. It takes nothing away. It takes nothing away from the incredible civil rights advancements that Lyndon Johnson brought. I mean, Thurgood Marshall called him the best president for blacks in his lifetime. At the same time, the war was still abominable. The war was still right. evil. The war was still institutionally racist. And I always thought Dr. King opposing Vietnam was completely the same ministry as Dr. King opposing apartheid. That's right. And, and we do need to look at that. He got 
dragged uh, for opposing Vietnam. Even his own, even folks within his own organization, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, as well as other civil rights activists, warned him, hey, if you do this, you're going to lose support of like northern white liberals or, or others who have historically been your allies. But what they didn't realize, what many people didn't realize was for someone like King, he saw these as human rights issues. So mm -hmm. it began as civil rights. It began as a, as a bus boycott in Montgomery. But very quickly, he recognized that people all over the globe we're suffering and injustice is injustice no matter where it occurs and no matter who's doing it and so yeah it was it was really his economic uh, agenda and his stance on vietnam that led to some of his sharpest criticism and especially toward the end of his life we're going to take a very quick break we'll be right back this is progress Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. You have a great line in your substack. The misappropriation of Martin Luther King Jr. isn't just about how we remember the past. It's about how we respond to the activists of our day you point mm -hmm. out that you know it's hypocritical for anyone to assert they would have been on the side of king during the civil rights movement but then decry current racial justice movements and when i see people abusing critical race theory which they know nothing about and can't explain what it is but use it to try to argue that racism isn't a problem anymore or that caucasians are the real victims of it or when i see mitch mcconnell claiming that racism is a thing of the past because we've had a black president and the John Roberts Supreme Court essentially using that as their justification to gut the Voting Rights Act. Dr. King's struggle is still extremely present and happening right now. Yes, we got rid of segregation and it's amazing, but the injustices that are baked into the system are still something that the establishment likes to deny. This is one of the most pernicious effects of segregation, which is ongoing today, both in our residential lives and in our educational lives, as well as our ecclesiastical lives at churches. What happens is folks get in these bubbles in their community. I, I tweeted recently about how simple it is simply not to fly the Confederate flag. Like, right. you just, you just don't put it up or wear it like as apparel, which some some people do. So how does that happen is is what I was getting at. It's because they're in communities, entire relational ecosystems that co-sign it, if not overtly praising it and promoting it, then by their lack of opposing it, they are promoting it. OK, so a lot of this is is what is happening with this it feels like almost willful misunderstanding of dynamics of racism. The other thing that's happening is people don't understand that racism is dynamic, meaning that yes. it's always changing. So there were gains in the civil rights movement that changed some of the more overt racist laws and practices. All right. We aren't seeing signs over drinking fountains or sepsis, right? But then people want to use that as an excuse to say racism's over. One of the things I find profound about MLK's philosophy, he was savvy. He understood there would be no comprehensive or meaningful, I would say, lasting progress on racial justice without economic changes in a yes. vast redistribution 
of wealth. And he recognized this all the way back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And so we like to think of him becoming much more focused on economics toward the end of his life. But this was actually part of his philosophy from the very beginning. Which is why they called him communist, right? I mean, I have to be honest yeah. with you, Jamar. You know, I like to come on the radio and pretend I, I have all the answers. But one thing that I just can't figure out, I just don't get why any kind of anti-racism is automatically perceived as communism. Right, We're in a time right, now right. when we have millions of our of our American brothers and sisters who just look at their Twitter feeds were a lot more offended by a football player's knee in protest than a racist cop's knee in murder. The amount of right wing tweets going after going after Kaepernick's knee instead of Chauvin's is astonishing. Mm. And for me, when I look at this culture where they're they're still all about saying, well, critical race theory is communism. Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter is communism. I wasn't alive when Dr. King was alive, but that's everything I've read about him. He was called a communist right. up until the day he died. Where is the connection here, Jamar? Is it a spiritual thing? I know these people haven't read Acts of the Apostles. They don't know that the Bible's communism. But right. <laughs> why, does, why is this the slur for any kind of anti-racist movement? Historically, communism was also called collectivism. So what folks in the United States particularly conservative folks, really reacted against when it came to communism was dividing the world into the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and and then wanting to centralize essentially all industry, all sort of wealth and jobs kind of a thing. And mm -hmm. what they were saying, what, what the people who opposed it were saying in the United States was, well, this mushes and melds all people together without any sort of distinction, which of course distinctions are important in this time for racists. They want to maintain white purity. They want to maintain that distinction. So they were opposed to any sort of collectivist, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. ideas. But also when communism manifested in the United States, because it was more class-based, it would link arms with black people as working class people You're along right. with white people and others and so when it came to um the scottsboro boys who were falsely accused of raping a white woman as was often the case right it was communist party folks in the united states that actually helped take up that cause and many black people historically were attracted to communism not because of the collectivist or even the class analysis, but because they were the only folks that were actually paying attention to the plight of black people. Now, there were deficiencies there because it did elide the racial dimensions in substitution of a class dimension when right. the two are really inextricably linked. But that was one of the things. And there's a famous sign, you can Google it now, and it says race mixing is communism. That's right. And so they use that as an excuse to lump civil rights leaders like MLK, which even in the 21st century, they'll level the accusation that he's a communist as a way of discrediting his work. And, and then the bottom line is that's what it's for, is to discredit his work, discredit his message. If you can label this person the boogeyman, then you don't have to pay attention to them. And your more appropriate reaction is to fear them and what they're about. And that's but what happens. Anytime you see any kind of effort done to care for the least of these, to actually do what the Nazarene talked about, I've become accustomed every decade in my life, Jamar, to some conservative slur to trivialize it. Bleeding hard liberals. I grew up hearing that phrase. I thought that was pretty weird and turning the Bible on its head. Then political correctness. Well, that was just people trying to use language to be kinder and nicer and less cruel. I, I thought that's what we're supposed to do. Then social justice warrior. That became a big thing to mock people for virtue signaling, like the virtue signaling on the mount. And now, of course, it's the co-opting of the word woke, which used to be a term yeah. that anti-racists used to describe trying to be anti-racist. It's now pretty much a term used universally by racists to smear anti-racism. I don't know anybody who says the word woke anymore unless it's a white person saying it derisively towards people who care about other people. You know, they say if you're if you're not being crucified, then you're not a Christian. It sort of seems huh. like if you're if you're not if you're not having the racists come after you and, and losing your friends for justice, you're not walking the path of MLK. You have to be willing to be unpopular, you have to be willing to embrace causes that might alienate you from your coworkers. And, you know, 
the hardest thing is to be prophetic towards your own community. So I always try to be wary of sort of patting myself on the back and, and saying, as in the Bible, thank God I'm not like those people, right? Um, yeah. But then I turn it around and I say, well, what is my community, Black people, Black Christians, what do they need to hear? What do they need to be called to account for? And I'm not creating a false equivalency and saying that racism is the same or equal burden across the color line. But I am saying that the way we constantly challenge ourselves and the way we constantly pursue and demonstrate courage is to go to our own communities and try to be prophetic. So for me, that means reminding folks MLK was a preacher first. If he'd had his way, he would have mm -hmm. been a pulpit preacher and probably a theologian writing all kinds of stuff all the time. He was a he was a man of the mind. He was an intellectual, but he was also an ethical intellectual. So when it came time to boycott, to lead, he said, if I can be of some service, I'll do it. And, and that's the sort of dynamic that we have to cultivate. It's not this either or, right? And then again, being prophetic towards your own community. Oh, the burden is so much on white people to talk to other white people. I know I as a black person am not going to be at the Thanksgiving table, the dinner table, the private conversation, most likely. But white folks of conscience, those who want to follow in the footsteps of Martin Luther King Jr., that's where you have to be prophetic to your own. Is somebody flying the Confederate flag? Is somebody buying into yep. the myth, yep. the lie that the election was stolen? Is somebody supporting people who are racist and white supremacists and all kinds of overt as well as more covert ways? That's when you need to speak up. That's not so, all the work that needs to be done, but we all have a responsibility here. So, Mr. Tisby, how are you celebrating MLK Day this year? So I'm always looking at opportunities for black people to chill <laughs> because we have got we are in a constant 24 7 365 battle for dignity. I'm also cognizant um, that MLK is the only national holiday designated also as a day of service. And that was in part from the advocacy of black people. They wanted to, in the spirit and tradition of Martin Luther King Jr. himself, continue serving their communities and humanity. So I'm all for that. One of the things that I do as a tradition on MLK Day is read letter from Birmingham jail. Nice. Just to keep that fresh in my mind, I would encourage all to do that. Another thing people can do, the King Center, which is headed by King's youngest daughter, Bernice King. They Amazing do nonviolence. Amazing lady. Um, they have a program called Nonviolence 365, which trains you in um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King's philosophy of nonviolence. You can take that even online. So just go to thekingcenter.org. I am... Also, I won't do it this year because I want to get my community involved, but there is, I was reading an article from uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture. There's a transcription endeavor where they need volunteers to transcribe historical documents from the Black freedom struggle, and you can wow. do that online. That would be a great way to serve. Jamar Tisby, it is so great to see you. I wish you a beautiful holiday. What is the best way for our listeners to keep up with you and your work? You referenced my Substack, jamartisby.substack.com. I'm also excited that I get to update my bio. I'm beginning my first semester of teaching at Simmons College of Kentucky in Louisville. That is a, a faith-based HBCU, Historically Black College or University. So also supporting Simmons College. And of course, I have my own podcast, Footnotes, on right. wherever, wherever podcasts are available. It's so good to see you, Jamar. I wish you a very happy and healthy new year to you and your family, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be right back after this. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to SiriusXM. I'm John saying I have to make an embarrassing confession right now, and I've told our guests this, but do you ever have um, an op-ed you read that you say, oh, that's really good, man. I'm, I'm saving that. And then like you, you leave a window open in your Safari or your Firefox for two years because you like that article so much, or maybe you bookmark it and go back to it a hundred times. Well, that's what happened to me a couple years back when I read a piece uh, on In These Times by Matthew Miles Goodrich called The Forgotten Socialist history of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, it begins with a letter 23-year-old Martin Luther King, before he was doctor, wrote in 1952 to his girlfriend, Coretta. And at one point in the love letter, he says, I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. He later goes on to say, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. Not quite the same as fully embracing communism. And yet, what was King talking about? And what did he mean? And where was he going with this? And why were his critiques of capitalism essential to justice and Christianity? And, of course, the fight against institutionalized racism that we are still waging this day. Well, Matthew Miles Goodrich is the man who wrote that piece I fell in love with five years ago. He's a writer. He's an organizer. You may have read his stuff in The Nation. He serves as fundraising director for the Sunrise Movement. And um, I'm so grateful that he wasn't shocked when we called him up and asked him to come by and talk about a five-year-old op-ed. Mr. Goodrich, welcome and happy Martin Luther King Day to you. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for thanks for having me. I, I certainly was shocked, but I'm, I'm more than to talk about Dr. King and, and the legacy that he leaves for for uh, young people and, and the American public these days. Well, I appreciate it because, you know, we, we've talked with a number of guests about how the power structure in our country is nonstop dedicated to muting the power of the words of Dr. King and blunting him and reducing him to a marble statue, reducing him to some angelic dead figure, reducing him to one quote from one speech. You point out that in the book, where do we go from here? Uh, he calls for the full emancipation and equality of Negroes and the poor. And you point out that pretty much everything he talks about is directly in line with what we've come to call democratic socialism. That's right. In, in that book, he also calls for the, the total abolishment of poverty, which is not a legacy that you associate much with Dr. King anymore. You know, when I was in grade school, I, I learned exactly he gave a speech and he was one of the great American heroes to make American democracy live up to its potential. Uh, but when I opened that book for where do we go from here, chaos or community, I was I was kind of shocked that I was reading a whole different king, a king that wasn't whitewashed, that wasn't sanitized in the lessons in grade school, but that was calling for things that sound remarkably similar to socialism, you know, a universal basic income, the expansion of social housing across the country, even constitutional amendments to guarantee economic equality, things that would radically transform the, the, the fabric of American life. And it's part of his legacy that has been totally left behind, as you say, when he is a marble statue reduced to, to a single quote. So the, the historical figure, Dr. King, has... Uh, a legacy that I was trying to I was trying to bring back and like make sure that we don't forget that this man had some deep reservations about capitalism. That's right. I mean, when you think about it, segregation, the kind of apartheid that we had in this country for most of Dr. King's life is gone. So the power structure doesn't need to defend that anymore. But so so he's fine. They'll talk about this man who helped end segregation. But boy, I was never taught about his anti-war activism, about how he infuriated LBJ and the Democratic Party. And I was never taught about his economic justice, that he was a labor activist. And at the time he died, he was fighting as hard for poor working white people as he was fighting for poor working black people. And, and you talk about how he endorsed A. Philip Randolph's freedom budget, which had a jobs guarantee, a living wage, universal health care. It's everything we, you know, hear from Bernie Sanders nowadays. And it's also rather consistent with uh, the New Testament. Absolutely. We that that line from the speech that we that we quote incessantly. Right. I have a dream. I feel like, like we often forget that it took place at the 
the march on Washington for jobs and freedom. We kind of forget the jobs and freedom part. But the civil rights movement was as much a, a, a movement for economic equality as it was for racial equality. And I think that one of the big inflection points in King's life is, is when he's writing where do we go from here, chaos or community? He had already won the, or the movement had really already won the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, um, and, and through through an, a tremendous sacrifice. But what Dr. King asks is that what's the point of desegregating a lunch counter if I can't afford to buy a hamburger? That's that's Ooh. the question that he's reckoning with. Indeed, you know, when it comes to issues that are uh, very touchy, like uh, redistribution of wealth, which is something that's done all the time, it's only talked about when it's meant to smear something. But King famously wrote, it is important to understand that giving a man his due may often mean giving him special treatment, a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for him in order to equip him to compete on a just and equal basis. And that's all it is. He's he's still talking about equality. I think you can make the argument that maybe the best way to make the argument is we, we support reparations for 400 years and then they can stop. Let's have reparations for as long as we had slavery, for as long as we had apartheid in the, only 400 that. years. And, and, and then we'll stop the reparations because by then we can assume things will be easy. But it goes to show he was never talking about special treatment or a handout. He was always talking about justice. What's your experience as a writer and activist when people use that phrase redistribution of wealth? It's a it's a phrase that's on my mind a lot as a as a as a fundraiser, and I think of I think of my role as as redistributing the wealth that has been taken by the the ravages of capitalism and giving it back to the people in the movement who are fighting for a, a more just and a, and a more equal economy. I mean, I think that if Dr. King were alive today, his his vision would align much more uh, much more with the Bernie Sanders faction of the Democratic Party than with um, than with the, the the neoliberal faction, to be honest. And I think that. The redistribution of wealth is is utterly essential to the realization of equality that Dr. King talks about, and that the next program of the civil rights movement that he was launching at the time of his death, the Poor People's Campaign, was all mm-hmm. about making sure that poverty was front and center in the American public. And he realized that if equality in theory is not the same as equality in practice, and what equality in practice looks like is the redistribution of wealth, is the redistribution of uh, of the luxuries for the masses back to the necessities for the for the masses. That's it. I mean, you, you go on to quote Dr. King in his letter to Coretta Scott, 1952. Capitalism has brought about a system that takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. He's as good in print, by the way, as he is live. Uh, capitalism has often left a gap of superfluous wealth and abject poverty and has created conditions permitting necessities to be taken from the many to give luxuries to the few. This was written 71 years ago, and yet it speaks directly wow. to everything we're struggling with right now. It's, it, he's a totally prescient, prescient thinker, and it goes to show just how, how far America has come and how far we have left to go um, in the struggle for, for economic and racial equality. I, I actually had the good fortune of meeting with a, um, uh, a movement elder from the civil rights movement last week for, for dinner. And I, and I asked him what it was like to, to be part of the, the dissolution of the civil rights movement you know, at the end of the, at the end of the 1960s. Uh, and, and what were the factors that contributed to the, to the demise of the movement then? And his response was that the white workers already had socialism for, for the most part, you know, and that socialism, that social democracy had been won through militant labor action and uh, right. under the under the New Deal, um, it had been won in the streets in strikes and protests. But this is the question that Dr. King is wrestling with because as soon as as soon as the he's realizing that we need full economic equality and the redistribution of wealth, and he goes to the you know to white workers, he goes to white people who are less interested in helping the in helping black people realize that full equality because they already have theirs, and that's that's what he's re- reckoning with in the in the in the book. That he he has this quote that it's easy to um, you know give the give access to the ballot when there's nothing on the line, but when it's about actually redistribution redistributing resources, 
he finds that a lot of whites were, were not so down for the cause. <laughs> content of their character, content of their character. Exactly. Yeah, Anytime exactly. you start talking about his actual message, his actual ministry, the actual work, they pivot to content of his character. And, and you know, you, you point out, I mean, you, you quote him how he said in 68 at the SLCC, in a sense, SELC, you could say we are engaged in a class struggle. And he later said something is wrong with capitalism. There must be a better distribution of wealth. Maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. Now, it's really important to just clarify one thing. Did Dr. King at any time in his life ever call for the nationalization of private industry? Because I, I, I don't see any evidence of him being a real communist or socialist. I think he was talking about capitalism with empathy like Senator Sanders does. I mean, I don't know of any instance where he actually embraces Marxism and calls for the state to do away with private property. Yeah, and this is this is an important point in his own in his own thinking, um, because he, he explicitly rejects Marxism, I think, in many ways, in part because mm -hmm. he's a Christian. and Marxism is all about, you know, abolishing the uh, uh, abolishing the uh, religion. But but for Dr. King, I think that what he what he was getting at is that the democratic promise of the American project is threatened by the vast inequality that we um, that we experience the vast economic inequality and racial uh, inequality and uh, inequalities of all kinds. And until that we can redistribute wealth, that we can abolish poverty, uh, the the rights that every citizen is supposed to is supposed to have uh, won't actually function in practice. And so he's his his socialism is not doctrinaire. It's not it's not a dogmatic Marxism. It's it's much more about the um, believing in the teachings of of Jesus Christ, who might be the most famous socialist of them all. Exactly right. I mean, the biggest liberal, the, the most famous brown skinned liberal executed by the state when he was in his endeavor. Um, but I, I, let me ask you a bit about, you know, environmentalism, because uh, I've always believed that if MLK had lived, that he would have become one of the leaders of the modern environmental justice movement. And he would have been one of the most articulate advocates to explore the links between systemic racism and environmental degradation. And after the Civil Rights Act in 64, you know, he went to Memphis to join black sanitation workers who essentially were protesting polluted, hazardous work conditions. I mean, environmental justice was literally one of the reasons that he was there. People who were dealing with an over overburden of toxic substance in their community. And I'm curious, I mean, considering that your your activism and your work with the Sunrise Movement, how do you think Dr. King would regard the modern struggle for environmental justice? And Dr. King, crucially, was also in, in Memphis um, supporting the sanitation workers on strike who were, who were striking oh, yeah. for a, a union, actually. They were striking yep. for the recognition of their union from the city of Memphis. Um, right. And so I, I think I think it's all connected that the that. Uh, you can't have a strong you can't have racial equality without a strong labor movement without redistributing wealth for from the from the classes to the masses and i think dr king absolutely would be a would be a, a leader in the environmental justice movement today you know i i see a lot of resonance between the freedom budget that he that he pioneered alongside Bayard rustin and a philip randolph which calls for the abolishment of, of poverty that calls for a a guaranteed income and the expansion of public housing i see a lot of resonances between the freedom budget and the green new deal to be honest this sort of that's remaking right, please. of the of the the remaking of the uh, American economy by the state to, to, to make sure that Americans are taken care of that that communities are, have clean air and clean water and are free from oppression that are free from industries coming in and polluting uh, in mm -hmm. in places where uh, uh, there is a lot of political power right so I think I think that that when Sunrise was developing the Green New Deal we were thinking of what is the the big vision that can really unite the that can really help us think beyond the limits of our current, you know, political horizons, right? How do we expand yeah. political possibility? And one of the inspirations is, I think, the work of Dr. King and the Freedom Budget and really showing that there's a there's a very long history of protest in this country uh, that you don't learn about in school that is absolutely inescapable in making America into the uh, into a more just and, and more fair country. And just as we have to remember how sharp Dr. King's labor movement was and civil rights movement was, I mean, we have to remember the sharp morality of the environmental justice movement. I mean, when we talk about this phrase environmental racism, we're, we're talking about, you know, minority communities are statistically more likely to live near polluted sites, statistically more likely to have a greater risk for asthma, heart disease and other conditions. That's expensive on an entire society that hurts an entire society. And The New York Times said, let me quote, studies have found this relationship 
between segregation and air pollution, water pollution, and even noise pollution. Studies show unequal societies invest less in environmental policies, monitoring, and research, allowing these issues to perpetuate. I mean, it's right there. It's completely in line with his entire message in ministry. And it's, it's totally deliberate, right? Industry will target these communities, will target minority communities because they know that, or they think that they know that, that there will be, there will be less pushback. They will be able to pollute. They will be able to dump all of their pollutions and all of their, the pollutants that they spew into the atmosphere into these communities without, without compunction. And one of the great stories of resistance over the last few years is the emergence of an environmental justice movement that pushes back on, on industry and that, yeah, is demanding reparations for that great injustice. As well, they should. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Matthew Miles Goodrich, who uh, writes for The Nation, and he has an excellent piece about uh, from In These Times about Dr. King's legacy, um, his socialist legacy, I guess we should say. I mean, is it is it fair to call him socialist if he didn't identify as such? This is one of the things I struggle with. I struggle with it, too. And I think that there is a there is a change in his career, right? When he's starting off as a public figure, you know, the shadow of the of McCarthyism and the House of uh, Un-American Activities Committee is still very much alive. And so you couldn't associate at all with Marx or, or communism or because that would be a death sentence uh, in the American public. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think that that he was strategic in his in his uh, who he identified with. Um, that said, part of members of his of his inner circle, um, people like A. Philip Randolph, you know, a, 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 a union leader was a socialist. Bayard Rustin, a, a movement strategist, was a socialist. And as you quoted just um, at the beginning, in his, in his private life, in his letters to to his girlfriend Coretta, he he said that his sympathies lied with socialism rather than with capitalism. And I think that that really comes to a fore after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, when he's actually fighting for the realization of equality, which means redistribution of wealth, which means actually putting money back into the hands of, of poor people. And, you know, you, you have a great piece about how King felt the shortcoming of the first phase of the civil rights movement was its emphasis on opportunity rather than guarantees. You write the ability to buy a hamburger at a lunch counter without harassment did not guarantee that the hungry would be fed. Access to the ballot box did not guarantee anti-racist legislation. The end of Jim Crow laws did not guarantee the flourishing of African-American communities. Decency did not guarantee equality. And it's one of the reasons I, I, I love the piece, because we live in this age where well-intentioned people have been conditioned to believe that typing something passionate and hitting send is activism. And really, I mean, Dr. King's an example of consistently telling white people, well, thanks for being on our side. That's not enough. More is required than just you nodding your head and saying, I support you. Absolutely. I mean, this is the this is the message in the in the uh, Birmingham uh, letter from a Birmingham jail, right, where he's addressing the white moderate who was saying, slow down, not now in, in a little bit. But actually, the urgency of the of the cause and the urgency of justice is now. And, and Dr. King is making an appeal to the to the hearts and souls of every white person around like, what are we willing to, to do for the cause of fellow man? So so can you tell me a bit about why he felt the poor people's campaign was the natural direction for his ministry to go to? Yeah, I think that the, the Poor People's Campaign was a way to put front and center the the failures of the of the New Deal, the failures of the the modern welfare state, showing that LBJ's Great Society and War and Poverty wasn't actually um, wasn't actually doing the thing that it was supposed to do, and that there were still many Americans, many of them black, living in abject poverty uh, across the country. And by setting up tent cities and by and by making the the issue of poverty front and center to the American public, that Congress would have to act, the president would have to act. And I think it comes back to this question of what are we what are we part of this democracy for? Are we just part of are we just about ideals and abstractions or are we actually trying to improve people's lives? It, it doesn't much matter if I have a right in theory, if I can't execute it in practice. Uh, and so we can desegregate all the downs, downtowns that we want. But if we don't have the resources and the funds to participate in in uh, shopping at that downtown, it's mm-hmm. the, it's the same thing. It moves from it moves from a a de jour form of segregation to a de facto form of segregation based on how much money you have. So it comes back once again to redistribution of wealth, which is everything in this country. Donald Trump's tax program was a redistribution of wealth just to the top 2%. You quote Dr. King in 61 speaking to the Negro American Labor Council where he said, call it democracy 
or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children. And he even said that ending poverty just meant that the rich would become even richer at a slower rate. I mean, that's really the question that the people who own this country have to face, isn't it? I mean, the 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 oligarchs who own this country have a choice. They can either have a smalling slice of an expanding pie or a larger slice of a shrinking pie. But it's still a tough sell. I mean, that's the hardest part, getting any kind of this, uh, any kind of economic justice, even talking about it. We know that the uh, the forces of fear are there to call you a communist. I mean, how do you approach it in your work? And what approaches do you find generate results in open hearts and minds? I think one of the, the biggest legacies of Dr. King for me is his legacy as an organizer, someone who refuses to be an individual and who meets other people where they're at with an open heart and an open mind for the cause of justice. And I think by organizing our communities, for me, it's it's fellow young people. Um, it could be anyone. It could be your family. It could be your, your, your friends at a dinner table. But refusing to be an individual and really bringing the, the cause of whatever you're passionate about to power brokers, I guess you could say. I mean, organizers help people feel powerful. And that's one of the, that's when I think one of the greatest shames in our country that people feel alone, especially in the pandemic, especially over, over Zoom, not getting to see their people are suffering right now. And that suffering is very private and it's very, it makes you feel alone and powerless. And I think that one of the amazing things about being part of a movement, things about about organizing and talking to a community that like it brings you out of your shell. It brings you in connection You're with right. or brings you to be connected with so many, with so many people who will probably share the same values as you or share, share the same struggle. Activism is community for the community. Matthew Miles Goodrich is a writer and organizer. He serves as fundraising director for the Sunrise Movement. His excellent five-year-old piece for In These Times uh, is called The Forgotten Socialist History of Martin Luther King. Sir, what's the best way for our listeners to keep in touch with uh, you and keep up with all your doings? You can go to mmilesgoodrich.substack.com where I'm launching a, a, a substack to talk about the movement. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm a fan of your work and I hope you come back again sometime. Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you, and thanks for these great words. And we'll be right back. This is SiriusXM. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I want to thank all of our guests today, Jamar Tisby and Matthew Miles Goodrich, for our commemoration of Martin Luther King Day. You know, Dr. King was, was such a gifted student. He Did you know he skipped grades 9 and 12? Before he enrolled at Morehouse College at the age of 15 in 1944, did you know he got his degree 11 years later? The title of his dissertation, by the way, was A Comparison of the Conceptions of God in the Thinking of Paul Tillich and Henry Nelson Wieman. Because just as you cannot separate Dr. King from the nonviolence, from the anti-war, from the anti-economic exploitation, from the struggle for economic justice for the working class, you also can't separate him from his ministry. The kind of Christianity that scares the revoltingly fake flock fleecers that gave us George W. Bush and Donald Trump. You know, according to the King Center, Dr. King went to jail 29 times. He was arrested for civil disobedience. He was arrested on trumped up charges many times. Once in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956, he was arrested and thrown in jail for driving 30 miles an hour in a 25 mile per hour zone. He had to deal with levels of injustice and harassment that we can't imagine. And for over 30 years now, U.S. citizens, including those of us who weren't alive when he was, have celebrated the third Monday of January as the Martin Luther King Jr. national holiday. But the worst thing we can do 
is to misremember Dr. King, as Jamar Tisby says, to leave out his more radical, his more progressive economic convictions from the record. And we know how he felt. His words, like Jesus, still have the power to freak out bigots and disturb the status quo. And like Jesus, uh, generally speaking, conservative America prefers the marble statue angel to the dangerous thinking activist. Martin Luther King Jr. was not colorblind, and he had no problem taking race into account for certain programs and opportunities because he knew it wasn't enough just to oppose bigotry. One had to understand where it came from. In his eulogy for the martyred children, he said, we must be concerned not merely about who murdered the four little girls who died in a church bombing, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderers. And I want to leave you with one story about Dr. King's legacy, and it's a sad one, and it's one you never hear too much. But did you know that Dr. King's mother was also killed by a man with a gun? It's true. Years after his death, on June 30th, 1974, 69-year-old Alberta King, she was playing the organ in Ebenezer Baptist Church at a Sunday service. And a man named Marcus Cheneau Jr. stood up in the front pew, pulled out two pistols, and began to fire shots. And one of the bullets struck and killed Dr. King's mom. She died in the church where her son had preached nonviolence. It's a terrible story, and it's understandable why we wouldn't be raised with it. The gunman said Christians were his enemy, and he wanted to kill King's father, but instead he killed his mother, and, and he killed a church deacon as well. And the killer was given a death penalty. But the sentence was later changed to life imprisonment. You know why? Because Martin Luther King's family opposed capital punishment. They walked the walk and they didn't compromise their values and embrace violence as a solution because it had happened to one of their own. The love and justice of his ministry continue on after his death. As Dr. King said, many white Americans of goodwill have never connected bigotry with economic exploitation. They have deplored prejudice, but tolerated or ignored economic injustice. And this show, this channel, is for people of good faith who want to do better. Look, all of us are blind at times and asleep to the suffering of others until we're not, right? If you didn't know, now you know. But Dr. King's mission doesn't belong to anybody. It is within us and it is around us and his endless love of justice and the hope for a decent society. It's waiting to be heard and felt and spread. It's alive. It's woke. And it is in you and you and you and you and me. Happy Martin Luther King Day. Peace. I'm John Fugelson.